Welcome to On the Edge of Equity, where every episode features crucial conversations centered on equity, diversity, and inclusion. But this isn't just talking the talk. It's about inspiring action, asking tough questions, and getting honest answers, because that's the only way that real change happens. Well, welcome to another edition of On the Edge of Equity, which is a new podcast that is being offered by Athena Communications. I am Tammy Belton Davis, the founder and president of Athena Communications and your host. And I just want to remind our audience of why we started this podcast. And it really is a combination of a few things that have happened over the last several years. One is that we want to have conversations that matter about issues that are important to us, about issues around equity. We want to talk about the challenging, uncomfortable ways that we want to engage in this world. And we want to have conversations that are rooted in how do we facilitate transformation and not just transactional ways of engagement. And so I am so excited to have guests that are coming on to join me on this journey. And today you are in for a treat. One of few folks that I absolutely love on this planet is Dr. Monique Liston. I am excited that she is joining us this morning again for a conversation that I think is going to be hugely important. And we're going to invite you to stay tuned to our edition of On the Edge of Equity. These are going to be conversations that I think will be beneficial to you in your own personal personal journey around equity, diversity, inclusion, justice, how we talk about the issues that are impacting our world. Stay tuned for these conversations that matter. So with that, again, as I shared, there is such joy that I have when I thought about starting these conversations and really the formulation for On the Edge of Equity. There were a few people who were at the top of my list that I'm like, they have got to be (laughs) on this show and having these conversations. Dr. Monique Liston, who is the founder of Ubuntu Research and Evaluation, is joining us today. Dr. Monique, hello. Hey, hey, hey. Thank you so much, Tammy. I hope you know how mutual this feeling is, how reciprocal this love is, this joy, this energetic vibration. So thankful to be here and humbled about how early I am in the process. I was like, oh my gosh, this is one of the first episodes and I'm still here. I am honored, honored to be a part of this. Well, I hope you know that there is lots of love. I've said this to you privately in conversations that you have often been my go-to for a host of things, finding joy, being the joyful militant that you are, being the brilliant mind that you are. You have been such a strong support to me, both professionally as I'm navigating this world of understanding and working in equity, but also personally just in how you demonstrate your authenticity as a leader. And so it is not a challenge for me to sort of talk about this in a very public way because you know how I love you privately. And so therefore the conversation of, you know, let the world know that is is hugely important. So why don't we just jump into this conversation 
conversations know that over the course of years, you and I've had critical conversations about a host of things. I love how you describe your team as freelance freedom fighters, you as a warrior scholar, joyful militant and educator. This boldness and authenticity in which you show up, can you just talk about the influences that have really been a part of how you show up in the world? Like, what is your motivations these days as as you are navigating these worlds? Yeah, this is one of my favorite questions um, because I feel like when people meet me or learn about me, they are curious, like, what, what brought this into being? And hands down, there's four things. I usually say three, but I reckon I recognize the fourth one too. The first one being my mama. Mm. <laughs> my mama. My mama made no excuse mm. for the way in which a black girl should show up in the world. Yes. She should understand herself as bold, as beautiful, as bright, as smarter as everybody else faster than everybody else. And that's how she raised me to be. And I say that, that that wasn't just affirmation through words. It was her actions too. I jokingly said that my mother taught me about the possibility of a world without white people from a young age, Mm. because whenever I was given toys or anything and the faces were white, she made them brown. (laughs) She made sure that the world that I was immersed in by choice Mm. reflected Blackness all the time. And so that was instilled in me from a very, very young age. That's one. Number two, I am proudly uh, a proud alum of Howard University. And despite having degrees from other Research One universities across the country, Howard is the everything. Come on, (laughs) Um, H.U., H.U., you know, in the building, um, those four years were critically transformational in my life. It's where I learned about deep Black thought, Mm. what it meant to be invested in protecting Black spaces, learning from Black elders in a way that was exposed to in my family, but then immersed in being on that campus. And so just so much from that experience goes with me in my day-to-day walk. Of course, anybody who's ever met me, I'm one of those annoying Howard people. Like, if you talk to me for five minutes, you'll know that I went to Howard University. Um, And then the third thing is I'm proudly from Milwaukee. And I think it's important to understand that the Midwest creates a special type of resilience. Absolutely. It's a different time of engagement than you get when you've been raised on the coast or even in the South. And I think that my way of being and moving throughout the world, I didn't realize till I moved out of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. But you have aspects of the South because all of our people are from the South who are in the Midwest. But we also have you got to work for everything you got situation because the network isn't the same as it is on the East and West Coast. So I think that was it. And the fourth thing that I think is a strong influence about showing up in the world is that I was an athlete and I was an athlete. Who had a black woman as a coach? Ah, what was your and sport? I was well. I was captain of the tennis team, captain captain of the track team, and then embarrassed myself on the basketball team. <laughs> 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 but track and tennis were my things, and my coach, who I'm still in contact, my coach from high school, I'm still in contact with to this day. Hmm really nurtured me and to understand what being a leader meant, what it means to stand on what you know and what you can do, not what 
someone else can do. Like you got to hold your own. And I think those things, uh, my mama sending me to Howard University, growing up in the Midwest and having a black woman coach, being a three sport athlete, really just kind of created this perfect storm of like, you really can't tell me too much. (laughs) (laughs) You really can't tell me too much. But at the same time, you're going to want to do it with me. Yeah, (laughs) You're going to want to ride with me. And I feel like I had the blessing of having all of these black women just be vital in shaping me through these institutions, through this work, and also, you know, nurturing me in ways in which you're going against the grain a little bit. My mother's coming out of being a chemical, uh, electrical engineer. Mm. So she's like, I'm used to being in these all male dominated spaces. I was playing a sports in which usually boys are dominating this. And in that time, white boys were dominating Mm -hmm. this. And I had black women like, no, you about to be the best. Let's go. We can do this and let's work hard for it. So those influences came together. And now, you know, we're here. We're here. And now we have this powerful influential woman who is showing up in the world. And I love that you connected mom. And I understand the power of a strong black mother myself. And even I think the piece that you've articulated around the region, the space, the city in which we hail from. There's a great deal of pride that I have for Milwaukee, which is where our podcast and business is headquartered. And there is something about the resilience of this city. We are often acknowledged, especially nationally, as having the greatest challenges of every indicator (laughs) that is not leading to a quality of life. We rank high in terms of that quality of life being low, particularly for Black people. And so the resilience piece, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, a little bit of the context of Milwaukee pride and both the balance of the challenges that exist in our, the real challenges, but also the great work that's happening on the ground with people who are dedicated, um, I think is an important piece. Yeah. I'm a product of the zip code that's talked about all the time, 53206. That's where I was born. That's where my parents lived. And in fact, up until last year, that's where I still lived. And I think it's important to understand that that was one of the safest places in the city for me to be. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So while people were talking about this being the most dangerous, the most economically depressed, all of that, Every single person on that block knew who my daddy was, right? who I was. <laughs> if anything looked remotely different about my house, like the mail came late, I looked like I didn't get something. Two or three people were going to be like, you good? Yeah. <laughs> you okay? What you need? I checked up on this. And I just always appreciated what it meant to be in community. And there was a couple of years ago, I believe CNN was doing a, like a project on 53206 and the producer called me because they were like giving names locally who could talk and they're like you know you're the first person who hasn't opened up this conversation with a negative view of the city wow and i'm like why would i i live here this is <laughs> I my live city here. yes this is my city why would i ever ever open up with something that is literally feeding my livelihood mm. and talk about what it's not doing and so I think about the narratives that have come out and I was taught by one of my favorite professors. And this is what some of the disruption that this podcast and the work that Athena does is what's popular is often the problem. Mm. And (laughs) the popular narratives about 53206 
aren't started by the people who live there. That's right. <laughs> They're started by a lot of people who want to tell you about what's happening because that's what looks or sounds or is a part of this whole giant racial narrative that blackness only makes sense if we can talk about it being least first. Mm, mm, mm. And so I think disrupting that is important because if you walk the streets of 53206, you're going to see homeowners, That's you're going right. to see gardens, you're going to see a lot of people offering you food or asking you where you're going. That's right. You'll, you'll see a lot. And it's not the, it's not the fact that you aren't going to also see the unhoused. You're also going to come across beer cans and trash on the street, but you'll also find that in the suburbs. So like, let's have a more authentic conversation of what is causing this community to not have access to the things that it needs and deserves versus being able to label this community as a problem or blight on the whole city. And so for me, that narrative change, that narrative shift, that let's actually have the people speak to their experiences instead of us telling us about them is really, really important for that narrative work and being able to have Black voices to speak about Black experiences. Absolutely. And I I love that you have flagged for us the narrative change in the conversation is that we often are leading with the deficit-based language and not acknowledging and not even speaking from an asset-based component to say that, yeah, again, acknowledging that there are challenges across community, but what you are going to find within the communities that are documented or there's data to support that they are distressed is that community exists and that people's resilience and their hope (laughs) is a part of this. And if we are not sharing those stories, we do a disservice to our communities. And we, I think we also put in the atmosphere the pain, you know, we perpetuate the pain that gets talked about instead of accenting the hope and resilience that is certainly within our communities as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's shift our conversation a little bit into so much of what you are aspiring to do is centered around research-based accountability. And we've even just been talking about the accountability people that folks of us who hail from this city, this great city, have a role and a responsibility to uplift that which is great. Call us out. And we have an opportunity as somebody who, you know, has been deeply committed to do that work. But talk about why research and data is the component around accountability that is necessary as we're engaging in work. Yeah, I took this approach to thinking about accountability because I realized that data, science, research, have been so white dominated Mm. that the language of data was racist and we didn't even realize it. Come (laughs) on and talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking, we're, we're using data and statistics as if it's some sort of neutral language. And it's like, no. (laughs) This is the way racism works. It tells you what is important. And one of my favorite quotes that I talk about all the time in my work is what's measured matters Mm. and what's matters is measured. And I say that because when you have uh, someone who's approaching a community from a deficit theory, what matters to them is proving their point. Mm. And so they are going to find data points that confirm what they already know. I mean, that's how we got... I'm not sure if people are aware when the formerly enslaved Africans tried to escape, 
you had scientists diagnosing them with mental illness and they called it drapetomania. Drapetomania wasn't just something that was talked about hypothetically. It made it into the American Psychological Association's handbook hmm. as a diagnosable mental illness. There was data and research to say that Black people were crazy mm. for wanting to try to escape. And so if we start looking at data and research as something that has been missing Black and Indigenous voices, then we're able to think about accountability to what people have been telling us this whole time. Wow. And so I think that sort of shift goes along with the narrative change, gets, goes along for us understanding data in new ways. You know, if to bring it to a more modern context, one of the things that people want to talk about in the pandemic, especially, is school attendance, mm. right? They want to say that, well, students who aren't in the school building this many days aren't going to graduate. And they're the problem if they're not attending school. And I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> we got to look at this data point from a whole different standpoint. Number one, students are going to be where they feel the best at. That's right. <laughs> and so if they don't feel good at school they're not going to come <laughs> and because of that the reality we need to stop looking at attendance as something that tracks student behavior and something that reflects school culture Aha. and so that means we need to flip it understanding our data like your low attendance rates has everything to do with your school culture the relationship with your families and what you're cultivating with students and arguably is your curriculum even rigorous enough hmm. to keep the attention of your students so while you're feeling like the streets is calling the streets are calling because it's more interesting right and we're not saying that school has to be entertainment and it's turning to cable television i'm saying captivate the young minds so mm -hmm. they want to be there love on the young people so they want to be there and let that attendance be a reflection of how deep your culture is and so for me research-based accountability is can we look at what we know is relevant measures for black folks mm -hmm. and insert them into this conversation to show that they have just as much if not more rigor for understanding the world around us than the measures that have been given to us to tell us about ourselves mm. and so that push is saying, well, can we understand how these measures can be a reflection of how whiteness and white supremacy has shaped the world that we lived in, as opposed to how anti-Blackness and poverty and all these things have made my behaviors negative. And I think that shift is really important for us to include in the research and data. That is powerful. This is why I love you. And this is why I glean from you because your perspective on how we utilize data that is already rooted in a system of oppression, in a system of white supremacy. So if we don't have data collectors or analysts or researchers of color who have that perspective, then we perpetuate these challenges in the same way how the data is being told, that narrative around that. Just a little bit more on understanding how we interpret and the power of having Black researchers, Black data collectors, and those who analyze that, having that diverse perspective as we reflect on these issues using, using that data. Yeah, I think about some of the everyday evaluation that we are involved in as community members mm. that can help us talk about the transferable knowledge that we have on the broader scale. And so one thing is talking about everyday evaluation of just like the everyday evaluative tasks that particularly I'm coming from a Black woman's perspective that we engage in. And one of my favorite ones is hair. 
right? There is a mathematical equation <laughs> that many Black folks, men and women, femme folks, non-binary folks utilize about the hairstyle that they're going to have today. Mm. <laughs> and that mathematical equation, which seems like, I mean, I'm just deciding to my hair, but it's a whole lot of science that's going into it. Absolutely. Because number one, what's today's weather? <laughs> right. That's right. The temperature, <laughs> the temperature, yes. the humidity that has everything to do with what how my hair is going to be. Number two, what am I responsible for today? Right. Like, am I about Come to show up and be... <laughs> see me today <laughs> who's, who's gonna see me today number three what did i do yesterday and what do i have happening tomorrow oh. that's gonna talk about what sort of economic investment as in time or money that i can put in today to generate what i need to show up today yes. those thoughts which all take what i just described many of us do within a 10 second situation in the morning 10 seconds we have processed all of that and decided okay it's going into a ponytail yes <laughs> oh or okay i'm slicking it all the way back because on friday is the hair appointment that's going to have me set for da, 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 da. or i got a date tonight so i'm actually about to wash this hair do this it'll look like this by noon but then because the heat that's right <laughs> is going to puff out a little bit that is evaluation data science mm. all of it and that everyday experience is complex and why it needs to come from our perspectives, because we know, we know, we know the folks that don't have kinky hair don't yeah, go through that. In the that's morning. right. That's right. Absolutely. Those factors aren't uh, aren't of concern of mm -hmm. that. And so when we bring diverse, when we bring black, when we bring indigenous perspectives in, we're elucidating factors that have never been talked about before that actually contribute to the end result. So me and you show up to the same meeting as Mary and Sally. Mm -hmm. and we, of course, are aware of the weather. Of course, are aware of tomorrow's weather. Of course, are aware of how much this costs in ways they never even considered in the morning. Mm. And they're the ones who might be thinking about, well, why can't these kids get to school on time? Because they should be able to get there at this time. And you're not factoring in that. If I'm figuring this out and I got two daughters, I right. do this math equation three different ways. <laughs> three different ways. Yes. And so that's that very simple thing of mm -hmm. like doing my hair in the morning is showing all the disconnects that folks who don't have kinky hair cannot connect to. Right. And then there's policy implications, right? Mm -hmm. Why does school start at this time? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why does work start at this time? What does it take for me to get there? What kind of economic investment is it? And just all of those things. And people want to oversimplify and feel like, well, that's just you. And I'm like, no. What we're finding out is if we're not making room for this complex equation, we're overlooking how uh, so many other complex equations that could be shaping people showing up, being present, being there. And that should help, help us change how we structure things and be in that conversation. So I use that as a simple example because yeah. usually I, I go through it every day. Right. <laughs> and, and I know others are. And it's like if that's just one thing could change how we model the school day or how our workflow goes. Mm -hmm. Imagine if we looked a little bit deeper in my life experience, what other things start coming out? What other things you have? I mean, the practicality, but the realness of those of us who navigate this world with kinky hair. And I come from a family of cosmetologists. Everybody does here in my family, except me. And that 
realization of how I travel, what I look at in terms of what I need my hairstyle to be, the timeliness of those weekly appointments with my mama. It's a real thing. It's not just about cosmetics. Like this is about my existence as a human and all of the things that make up. And you reminded me, Monique, of a situation that was happening with a, there was a woman who was working in theater uh, and she had talked about her experience of navigating the world of, you know, what does my hair need to look like? What do I need to do in order to do this performance? And how there was not a, an understanding of the challenges that people with kinky hair have to endure, particularly women who have chemically treated or not chemically treated hair. What does that process look like? And how was a point of affecting her emotionally because there was a disconnect? And making a case and helping people to understand that this is a reality, that it may seem like a very simple, small part of our existence that has huge impacts. And I appreciate so that you've just broken that narrative down in such a practical, but vitally (laughs) important part of the Black human existence and the kinky hair existence. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to ask you this as we talk about these experiences of both understanding how we show up in the world, but understanding just what you started to connect to in terms of our liberation and that part of the human experience is both understanding what is our capacity to connect to each other. You are leading this movement, all right? And this this hashtag lone liberation movement, which is about liberation from finance (laughs) and debt. And as someone who firmly believes that the amount of student loan debt that I am currently holding will probably not get paid until Jesus gets back, (laughs) that is the way in which I just have come to realize that this is, I'm probably not going to release all the debt that I owe in terms of student loans. Can you talk more about sort of this movement that you have internally, but also you've been sharing on social hashtag loan liberation? We love it. Ooh, man. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I could just break it. You know, it's the beginning of the month. So we just, you know, did that round of bill payments. Right. And I'm going to just put it all out of the line and be very transparent. And so I had full tuition scholarships throughout my collegiate career, right? So I did all the right things before everybody says, da, 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 da. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> did all the right things. I got all the scholarships, had full scholarships. Also, my parents work, work regular jobs. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I grew up in the house of a postal worker. So it, and we ha- I had siblings in which going to college didn't, wasn't funded, right? Like we have no money for you to go to school. In fact, my parents said, we don't have money for you to go to Howard. You got to figure that out on yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go, but that's on you. That's on you. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I will also eat it up differently if people weren't so eager to use my free labor that I'm telling you is a product of my collegiate experience mm. that I know you, some folks would not be listening to me because unless I had this two little letters in front of my name. And so I did all the things 
<laughs> that this world told me were important. And now people want me to do so much free labor. Mm-hmm. Can you just show up and do this? Can you talk to this? Can you figure this out for me? And I'm like, how am I supposed to do all this free labor? And I'm literally paying for it still right? <laughs> in order to show up for you. And so I had that coupled with just like these private loans really, like you said, even after Jesus come back, there's still going to be a debt in my name. <laughs> right. And I looked at one of my loans. The loan I took out was for $11,000. And I have been paying on that loan religiously. So every month for the last five years mm. up until June 1st. So June 1st, 2017 to 2022, I pay every single month on time mm-hmm. above what was expected. And then I looked at the total. This was an $11,000 loan I took out. The total due after paying for five years, that five years added up to about $8,600. The total was $12,114 still. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How was that due? What was I paying? Right. (laughs) What have I been paying? And so that sort of frustration to me, like I'm, this is a different economic time than my parents. My parents were able to do some of this and still buy a house. Well, now if I try to show up buying a house, they're like, look at this student loan. Well, I can't get out of the student loan debt because now I have to pay these rent prices if we haven't seen our continually growing, going up because you won't let me buy a house. And the rent right. is saying that I also need to make three times the amount of rent in order to live there. So once I make that amount, then I pay that. Then the loan people are like, well, then you need to pay us this. Mm-hmm. But that means I can't live. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so how do we make all of this make sense? Um, and so the loan liberation to me is um, honoring the fact that Black women, femmes, and non-binary folks are doing so much organizing in their their community, especially through the pandemic. The number of mutual aid networks that have popped up, the ways people have dedicated themselves to um, helping find food resources for folks, addressing folks who have been sick with COVID and making sure they had the right medication, Mm -hmm. get to doctor's appointments, the way folks have been caring for the elderly, have been showing up because of untimely death. And still having to all this economic debt to pay. And for me, it was like, I show up. I'm just, you know, I show up for my community. Mm-hmm. And there's just no way I should be also paying to show up for my community. That's right. And so all of these folks who, Ubuntu is a for-profit evaluation company. We hold really big contracts. The everyday reg- regular person, they're like, how can I contribute? And it's like, we can create that. Let's help us get rid of these student loans. Because once these student loans are um, gotten rid of, the mental the mental anguish can Indeed. stop. And just the idea of being in servitude to these numbers that you can never actually get for, you know, get past. And then acknowledging the degrees that we got didn't materialize to have the type of jobs that we're supposed to have <laughs> in the economic system that we're in. And so loan liberation is really about understanding these folks, especially Black women, femmes, and non-binary folks who are continuously showing up in their community. And they're showing up in this community because they were bold and create courageous enough to like go get that college degree yes. and be able to use and flex their networks. Well, they need some of the, this relief taken care of mm-hmm. so they can continue to show up. And so making that commitment to ask people, especially white folks who are well-intentioned and mm-hmm. want to know how they can help and It's like, well, help us get rid of this debt because this debt is crippling. (laughs) And and, and no matter how smart I am and no matter how innovative I am, unless I come up with the next Facebook, I'm going to be in debt. And this debt (laughs) is just school. And that was the thing that was like really eye opening to me when we started looking at our team. Folks didn't even have credit card debt. Don't even have it because Mm -hmm. do you see how much student loan debt I'm getting? Right. 
So yeah, we need to get out from under that and liberate it. That's my goal. Like mm-hmm. I can't, I can't like these need to go away in the next five years. Our uh, political administration is not doing enough to relieve it, even though I've heard the numbers from the assistant secretary of department of education mm-hmm. who told me to my face, here are the numbers of amount of money that we give. And I'm like, that's great. Not enough though. Not enough. <laughs> not not enough. enough. And who is not impacted by student loans? It is it, even if you individually have not, it may be somebody in your family that's impacting your household. So this, the amount of debt that is connected to student loan that so many people are facing. I love that you have really sort of said our piece of the pie is being able to acknowledge the debt that first exists within my company and my community and how this can be this one demonstration of liberation and justice from this debt um, is really sort of how you have approached this world and uh, approached this part of your life and is an example, I think, of, you know, how we model justice. And so I want to ask you, as we are looking at liberation from student loan and liberation around our kinky hair and liberation around our thoughts and speech and our narrative, how is the fight for justice and liberation? You have already started talking about this, but Tell the people how this shows up in all facets of your life, both professionally as you are running a business that is doing amazing work in the region, but also, you know, as you are navigating this world personally, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say that like I integrated things, but that's not true. It's just I've never been without these things. Mm. And so as I, you know, shared before about like I was raised in a house with a black mama who like reminded me every day that we could imagine a world without whiteness <laughs> harming us at every turn. That meant that that started with my playing when I was three of mm. like <laughs> imagining a world that was different. And so for me, there's no personal or professional to bring together. Mm-hmm. I'm a black woman who deserves dignity personally when I go out on a date. <laughs> and I deserve that same dignity when I show up and want to deliver a keynote address. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's like that's acknowledging that I am the same person no matter where I show up. And this world is white supremacist, anti-black and needs to be changed. And that means whether I'm going out for drinks with friends or going on an airplane to, you know, visit a client, the same world is there. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that fight means it's consistent and persistent. <laughs> and am I shaping my energies in order to deal with it appropriately? So that means my professional side, are we creating workspaces that allow folks to work autonomously, more fluidly, in a remotely in a schedule that protects them. For us, it's also important as we deal with racial equity work in corporate, you know, spaces, organizations all the time. We also have to think about our own emotional well-being, taking on that energy and how we align and protecting that. And then on a personal side, it's like, well, how do I learn how to practice my peace? Mm. How do I integrate protecting that and practicing that on a regular basis so that it's not something foreign to me when it occurs, right? And so for me, understanding that the world itself is already this problem, but the only thing I'm in control of is me, 
that means I got to control me wherever I show up. Yeah. <laughs> and whether that's, you know, at work or grabbing a burger, like it's the same thing. So to me, that fight is persistent and mm-hmm. never something that I can ever give up on. But what I can learn to do is how to protect it, depending on the space that I'm in. You have lifted number one the authentic leadership, right? And being authentic wherever you are. Also, I think the piece around my brand is who I am, wherever I am. And I think the element of congruency around your leadership that I just appreciate the leadership lesson in that, you know, this fight has inherently been a part of my existence in terms of the early influences that you've already talked about, but how and where I show up congruency around the fight, congruency around the work, but also the congruency around that piece. Um, I just want to lift that, that lesson that I think is an incredible part of as we are continuing these fights and as we think about the work around equity, as we think about all of that, the congruency and authenticity of who we are and our leadership has to show up wherever we are. That is such a critical piece. So Dr. Mo, let me ask you, this is going to be one of our final questions. The council, and you've you've been sharing so much of this as, as part of our conversation today, but what would you share with individuals who want to get engaged in the work and the journey towards equity? So all the isms that exist, how do people find their way of navigation and and how they should engage in this? How to get how do folks get started? Yeah, I think my first bit of counsel is the work is in you. Mm. It's not external to you. And I think a lot of folks are like, I want to change this, that, that, and other thing. And I'm like, Siv, the problem change is you. you. <laughs> you Let's to. say it one more time for the people in the back. <laughs> it's you. It's you. It's always you. It's me. It's always going to be me. And I think people jump the gun and want to go busy themselves. Mm. I'm going to say this. Let me just get real tangible. I know that Black women want to jump the gun and fix everybody Mm, else. But that's what we do. But sis, the problem is you. And I'm saying the problem is you, not about you or something that needs to be fixed. Mm. It's that you have been so conditioned to work well in this system that you don't even understand how much harm you're creating for others Mm. and yourself. Mm. And so do that, do that work first and foremost. So that's the first counsel. And folks don't like to hear that. People who are doing the work for a long time don't like to hear that, Uh but it's always going to be my (laughs) way to begin. (laughs) It's got to be said. Um, The second thing that I think is really important is folks need to read. Uh And people are like, I don't got time or I don't want to. Find a way. (laughs) Find a way. Because I'm going to tell you that all of our ancestors who did so much liberation work were read Uh (laughs) and read each other's stuff. And reading isn't just because for the sake of reading, like now I know you read this stuff, one, because it connects you to the broader movements, because people think I'm the first one. No black person is the first to do anything. Just want to remind all of us that right now, Mm -hmm. even in this moment, in this era, like we're the first one. No, black people have been moving across this world and planning in all kinds of ways. That whole narrative of being the first black is whiteness telling you you're the first black person Mm -hmm. that we're going to recognize. And so we need to let go of some of that. Let's connect to some of the things that we know and learn. But most importantly from reading, 
reading connects things in your brain that haven't had a chance to connect before. And so if you want to create change or start building an equitable work or want to imagine or innovate, Reading is the actual practice that's going to get you there. Wow. It's not coaching because mm-hmm. people are like, oh, I'm going to give me a coach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> coaching is great. Coaching is not going to be what's going to connect those things mm-hmm. for you. Or I'm going to take this class or get this certificate. Not going to be that thing. I, you need to get into some books, sis. And so I think reading is the, the the second thing. And the third thing is you need to connect with people who are always already doing the work that you think is important because it's not about shine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we're really about this equity work, it's not about me being the lead, me being seen, me getting recognition. It's about the work actually happening. And if you're doing it with any authenticity, you're going to recognize the people who are doing the work and start being present and engaged and supportive of them. And you'll feel whatever sort of things that need to come up, if you're doing those things, they're going to come out for you. Mm -hmm. But I always want to remember people, the number one equity project, the number one focus that we have to be focused on is your home, Mm. (laughs) right? So where you at and your immediate family, because folks love to preach equity all day, every day, and Mm -hmm. then really are prepared to have a conversation with their gender fluid child. Mm. Or people want to go out and talk about, I'm a DEI expert, but not ready to deal with their gender queer family member. Come on. I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm that, but not prepared to have a conversation with somebody who is experiencing sex trafficking in their family. Take all of that radical energy, take it back to you, back to your house and figure that out because if we want the ripple effect to actually occur it's going to vibrate out from you doing that work more so than it is from doing those workshops out in the street but it'll get you paid (laughs) this is so good I so appreciate the practicality that it starts with you and that it is if you really are committed to the work it is about number one finding somebody who's doing it in a way that connects to you and you getting connected to that and then read <laughs> the education component of this. Learn something. Be informed and take yeah. the opportunity to really educate yourself. Does that that all make sense? Yes. Yeah. That's it. That's it. What gives you hope? What gives me hope? I think it is seeing for all the things that we can hate about social media. I just love so much that people share about their children. Mm. And I feel like I would not know as many wonderful things about folks' children had I not been exposed to social media and just be like, you know, every year I get to participate in graduation season every year. Right. Or how many new babies I get to celebrate despite, you know, being on opposite sides of the country in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, And so being able to see young people, new babies and new birth, I am a a trained doula. So I'm always thinking about all the mamas and the babies. and Um, So that the social media, TikToks, Reels, Instagrams, where you see little babies, especially black babies, just smiling and laughing and being cute. I could watch that all day. Mm -hmm. We'll prefer doing that all day. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) And then my final question, since you've encouraged us as part of our own journey and how do we engage, like get a book, read something. Tell us what is on Dr. Monique Liston's reading list. What are you reading? I always have 17 books and I know y'all can't see me, but here's the books that I think are most important for folks right now. Undrowned Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Animals by Alexis Pauline Gums. Undrowned. You can find Alexis Pauline Gums on um, the social media is an excellent follow. Okay. 
she connects a lot of leadership lessons to what what she has learned about marine animals. And these, like she said in the title, are Black feminist lessons. You can see I got it marked up because this, whoo, this book, this right here, life-changing. Okay. <laughs> the second life-changing one, and I know people are going to be like, this isn't what I'm into, but trust me, you still need to read it. It's called Recovering Black Storytelling and Qualitative Research. And I know folks are like, I'm not a qualitative researcher. This ain't for me. It is. It is. It is. Because what this amazing sister did was take stories from young people and create a whole sci-fi Afrofuturist wow. narrative. Okay. And just reading how she interpreted or reinterpreted some of the work these young people did in terms of how what they see in their communities into this sci-fi story. So mm-hmm. if you're in the sci-fi, you'll really get into to this. Did you post that on social recently? Okay. Yes. Because the author the author came. <gasps> I am almost uh, like 100% sure that I went to Amazon for that title because I think I'm certain I saw you lift it on your social. But you mentioned that the author had come. Yes, the author commented. I mean, the network of Black Black women uh, PhDs is like, yay big, right? So it's like, if you say one thing, so-and-so is going to be like, I know her. I went to school with her, blah, blah, blah. And then she was like, thank you. You don't know how much work it took to get this book published. And so it was an affirmation to her. I wrote her a whole love, love letter because that's how amazing that book is. Yes. And it's a testament. Yes. No, please go ahead. I just have one last one. You know, we are celebrating, continuing to celebrate the life of Bell Hooks, which mm-hmm. is something that a true authentic shock for me and my whole organization because we literally talk about Bell Hooks every week. <laughs> and so the book that I want to recommend from her Bell Hooks was prolific, has a thousand books, but the one I want to recommend particularly is Belonging, A Culture of Place. Okay. Um, as we talked a little bit about uh, what it meant from us being from the Midwest or being from Milwaukee and that story of resilience, I think it's important for us to understand where do we belong or where do we feel like we belong and are we coming at that belonging from a, a Black sense <laughs> and understanding how Black communities shape belonging and what that feels like for us. And um, as always, a uh, a uh, great, honest, and uh, reasonably vulnerable storyteller, Bill Hooks. Mm, so, indeed. Well, I am so glad that you belong to me and I belong to you, and yes. that together we're going to belong to each other. I <laughs> want to tell you how much I appreciate you and thank you for joining us this afternoon, joining us for this conversation, so many nuggets that I've been able to pull. And I trust that those that are listening are going to find some profound ways to engage because of what they have heard from you. So I just want to appreciate you again, Dr. Monique Liston, who is our guest today. I just want to give you like the hand clap (laughs) and all the celebration for number one, joining me in this conversation, but all the work that you do that is inspirational and aspirational to so many of us. Um, I want to encourage you to stay strong, stay in the fight, protect your peace and keep on being the joyful militant that you are um, because you are an inspiration to me. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this invitation. And I can't wait to share this with others. Yeah, me too. I can't wait. I can't wait. Thank you for joining us on the Edge of Equity. Please join our email list at info at athenacommunicationsllc.com so you don't miss a single episode. The link is also in the show notes.
You can also support the show by sharing it on social media with your personal and professional networks, suggesting guests and topics for us to spotlight, and engaging in crucial conversations about systems change.